Welcome to the podcast where heavy industrial industries meet the venture capital ecosystem, interviewing both thought-leading investors and pioneering founders to better understand the opportunities and challenges that lie ahead for digital industrial innovation. Your host is Ty Finley, and this is the Heavy Hitters Podcast. Sam joins us today from San Francisco. She's a partner at Innovation Endeavors, where she spends her time in two main areas, infrastructure and industrials and climate. During her time at Innovation Endeavors, she went back to get her MBA and held product roles at both Neuro on the autonomous vehicle side and Alkin working in healthcare AI. Prior to joining Innovation Endeavors in 2015, she started her career at Bain & Company. And Sam has invested and is on the board of multiple industrial innovators, including PlotLogic, FutureProof, Mechana Labs, Fair Labs, amongst others. Sam, welcome to the Heavy Hitters. It's about time after all of our industrial innovation coffee chats here in Austin. So excited to have you on. Yeah, thanks so much for having having me. I'm happy to be here. Right on. Well, I always give a little snippet with my introduction, but give us the color commentary on your journey and, and what led you to becoming a partner at Innovation Endeavors. Sure. I think, you know, you covered a lot of the stepping stones here, um, but I think the through line for me is just caring about the impact of my work. That's what led me to originally study political science. I'm sadly not not an engineer like all my colleagues um, to running the pro bono nonprofit consulting group at Bain and then to spending six months working at um, a social enterprise in Rwanda while I was at Bain as well. And I think for me, impact definitionally means scale if something works. How do we scale it to touch as many lives or tons of carbon or companies as possible? And this is really how I found my way to innovation endeavors and to venture. You know, we have the privilege of getting to invest in entrepreneurs, leveraging emerging technology to solve important problems that were previously intractable. And so to that scalability point, if you can if you can build a great business on, on great product or technology, then you'll likely attract more capital, enabling you to scale that product, business and impact. And that's really how I found my way here. Um, you know, in 2015, Innovation Endeavors was was one of the few firms working on uh, innovation in these industries that I thought were sort of important and meaningful um, by definition. Uh, and so to that end, you know, you, like you mentioned, I spend my time across two main areas, sort of all things infrastructural and industrial and all things climate related. Um, and what that actually looks like is on the infrastructure and industrial side, this is, you know, everything from manufacturing to supply chain logistics to the construction the built environment and mining and materials um and really sort of those are such foundational parts of our economy and the ability to sort of think about innovating to make them sort of more efficient more sustainable all these kinds of things that i know we'll sort of get into more in this conversation has been quite compelling and then moreover on the climate side this is really you know both a lens into decarbonizing everything i just described on the industrial front um as well as now a lot of time as well in energy climate risk and all things carbon economy. So, you know, I just feel lucky to get to spend my time thinking about investing in and supporting founders um, across those sectors. Love it. Well, we're definitely getting in to more of the industrials and climate chat. And I love the word impact. It's going to be a rallying cry for all of this discussion today. So we'll, we'll be able to unpack that a little bit more. Uh, maybe before we jump in, um, always love to also just set the stage for the listeners who maybe are learning more about innovation endeavors. Tell us a little bit more about the shop, its history. Um, and I know you gave us a little bit more of your focus areas there, but um, give us a little download on innovation endeavors. Yeah, of course. Uh, we're an early stage firm, you know, pretty broadly, but we invest primarily at the intersection of a few convergent technologies that we call the super revolution. I think we'll get into that a bit as well. And this typically looks like 
two things. I would say one is sort of emerging technology applied to the real world. It's really that intersection of, of tech and the real world. And the second is horizontal enabling technologies. Um, so I invest primarily in the former emerging tech like AI, data, and robotics in sort of those two areas we just described, industrials and climate. Um, but a bunch of my partners span a, a sort of a variety of wider spaces. So some folks focus on applications and sort of biology and life sciences, really, again, computational and engineering approaches there. And then a couple of folks focus more on, you know, intelligent software and enabling infrastructure. So this could be generative AI, quantum computing, security, sort of anything in that vein. So, you know, we have a pretty broad footprint in terms of end markets and applications as a firm, but all sort of pretty technically forward and technically driven in terms of the kinds of innovations and kinds of companies we're looking at. Um, and the background here is that Innovation Endeavors was founded in 2009 by my partners, Dror Berman and Eric Schmidt, the former CEO of Google. Um, we're six partners, five investing and one operating, You know, about 10 folks on, on the investment team and 15 to 20 in total, including portfolio support and operating folks. Um, and we primarily lead and first uh, invest at the seed and series A stages. We have a really you know, active investment philosophy, so aim to be the most helpful folks on the cap table. Right on. Well, uh, you, you kind of called out the the super evolution thesis, so let's jump into it. Yeah. Um, the, the firm defines itself as an early stage fund investing in that thesis of the super evolution, which is described as a nonlinear approach to innovation that drives generational change in order to solve problems that matter. I couldn't say more about your word impact, right? And then the firm goes on further to define the associated agents of change as those highly technical founders advancing industries with transformative solutions at scale, as you mentioned earlier. So very true to your 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 themes here, Sam. School us up on all of this is a little bit of a level set for our discussion today. And then also what you guys outlined by the convergence of three technical developments that are making all of this possible. Would love to learn a little more. Yeah, so we think about the super evolution as the convergence uh, of these three things. So data, compute, and advanced engineering. Um, the three, each of those really has you know unique trends. So on the data side, you see just huge explosion and, and exponential growth really in the amount of data we have. Um, obviously, that's also you know increasingly scrapable as folks like sort of OpenAI are, are demonstrating. So that's sort of the data piece, which is just like we have you know more and more of it, more value there. The second piece is compute. Um, this has become sort of widely accessible. You know, you don't have to set up your own data centers anymore with sort of widely available um, cloud providers. It's getting cheaper and cheaper over time. And, and lastly, it's sort of more powerful, obviously, you know, GPUs. And I think we'll continue to see sort of more innovation here to support this next generation of, of foundation models as well. Um, so that's sort of the compute side. And then lastly is advanced engineering which is really any sort of novel method to take advantage of that explosion of data now available on the more accessible and cheaper and more powerful compute of what do you actually do with that? That could be anything from sort of the, the you know, generative AI approaches we're seeing to CRISPR on the biology side. It's really a question of how you take advantage of the first two themes. So that's how we think about defining the super evolution. I keep thinking that we'll have to sort of revisit and refresh that framing, but you know, I think we've we've been using that name for five years and probably the concepts since our founding and are only finding that it's become more and more relevant. Um, so I think we've been at it for a bit, but it feels like we're still sort of in the early innings of those convergent technology trends coming together to enable a lot in the real world. So maybe that sort of brings me to what the super evolution actually means for the world. I think 
for me, it's that not only can you use these technologies to disrupt these previously un and underserved industries that we're going to talk about, but I think the big thing for us is that you can actually innovate and iterate much faster as a result of learning cycles. So there's um there's a learning loop in biology called design, build, test, learn, which is about you know how to design and run experiments. Um, but we think this is sort of really appropriate for our whole portfolio that by driving the cost and time to design and do experiments down dramatically and then closing the loop on that learning, not only can we innovate, but we can actually do it much more rapidly. And so that's really the core of the super evolution hypothesis around learning, whether you call it ML or AI, and how that accelerates innovation in a much broader sense by closing the loop and by doing it much more cheaply and quickly. Absolutely. And maybe just to make it a little more tangible, we mentioned the agent of change part of this equation, right? Those technical oriented founders. Mind giving us an example to, to bring some um, some tangibility to the super evolution with one of one of your founders or, or an example? Sure, of course. Yeah, I have a couple of stories from our portfolio that folks um, might be familiar with from the outside. Um, so one is uh, Plenty, which is an indoor vertical farming company you might be familiar with. Um, mm -hmm. This is a really interesting example from a few years ago. Uh, they had an issue in one of their R&D grow rooms. Um, and in doing a forensic analysis on what went wrong, you know, they went through that whole checklist. I think it was like 18 to 19 items they were exploring and realized the one potential issue was that the agronomist didn't listen to the AI-based farm OS, which was sort of like guiding and making recommendations on what should be done. In this case, the agronomist had actually intervened um, because they thought, they actually thought the sensors weren't working as um, because the system had made a suggestion that sort of defied their intuition and understanding of what would be healthy for plants. So they then reran the experiment without intervention. And when they followed the AI recommendations, they hit a milestone for the company. The plant productivity exceeded the printed literature and had the highest yield ever observed. Um, so what we see there is that Plenty's controlled environment with an AI-based OS had surpassed actually what science said was possible. And this was three or four years ago. So a lot has happened since. But I think this is particularly interesting given sort of the alternative here, which is conventional outdoor growing. Like one of the main limitations of experimentation in agriculture is that in most crops, you have one growing season per hemisphere per year. So it's really hard to experiment rapidly. You can definitely run many trials in parallel, but it's hard to learn exponentially when you're not doing it sequentially like that. So Plenty can start a new growing cycle every day and capture really comprehensive data on all the inputs and outputs. And that's really what's enabled them to unlock these extraordinary learnings and insights. So I just think that's a, it's a really interesting example of that sort of full closed loop and how that looks really different than sort of the counterfactual um, in, in conventional ag. Absolutely. Uh, and, and so maybe then we'll take this setup. Um, when you mentioned data, advanced compute power and advanced engineering, all things the tech community writ large probably fully understand. Um, Sam, where our conversations are always go, which is a launching point to go deeper on that intersection of the super evolution thesis meets industrial and infrastructure sectors as you spend a lot of time and energy on. So a few questions as we now tie these two worlds together, subject of this podcast, um, help us tease out how are you seeing the super evolution play into industrials currently? You know, what do you expect that to look like going forward? And, and what are those key trends and tailwinds at this intersection that are that are giving you confidence here? Yeah, maybe a, a couple of things I'll frame, which maybe are intuitive for you, but I'm, I'm curious to hear actually are, are a few factors that I think are just like worth mentioning 
about many of these industrial spaces. And these aren't necessarily trends, but I think they're important features of the market, which directly impacts sort of how we think about building and funding companies in the space and ultimately what makes a startup successful here. Um, I think two potentially sister themes are one, you know, I just think we're very early on the digitization curve relative to other industries. So, you know, a lot of the work that has been done and still needs to be in these industrial spaces over the past five years are often sort of like basic digital workflows and data creation and labeling. So, for example, in construction, we've seen the digitization of project management, of takeoff, um, and in supply chain, we've seen software first freight forwarders and brokers pop up. This is really sort of like the first wave of digitization. We need to unlock those faster learning loops I just mentioned and really take advantage of the super evolution. And the second sort of sister theme there is really just that productivity in many of these spaces, like in construction certainly, is, is flat to down and definitely lagging sort of the gains we've seen in other industries, especially knowledge-based ones. So there is a huge need to bring automation, labor enhancement and computation and optimization to these spaces. So that's kind of like one sort of bucket of stuff. The next mm -hmm. is, um, it's just a space sort of full of large incumbents. And I'm sure this is, you know, sort of true to every space to some extent, but the incumbents in the industrial sector are just huge, have often been around for, you know, a hundred plus years and have sort of these deep entrenched advantages of large existing assets, whether that's facilities, equipment, et cetera, supply chains and relationships. So there's certainly some cases where it could make sense to go sort of like full stack in the industrial sector, but more often than not, this winds up looking like you're playing with or serving the existing players. This is a bit different than the other spaces we look at. Um, there's also this piece of sort of related to that large incumbents is the cost to experiment. So sort of what I was just describing in the super evolution of how do we drive that cost down? How do we experiment faster? How do we close the loop? Um, it you know works best in that world. I think the reality of the industrial sector is that it's not always the case that that's possible when you're dealing with the real world. So for example, we're investors in a company, Citrine, which is a company leveraging machine learning for novel materials development. And like one limitation on their ability to drive fast experimentation is the actual just basic R&D and lab costs of formulating and testing a new material. And obviously like that sort of parallels what we just talked about with Plenty, where mm -hmm. you know the conventional method for growing in agriculture has limitations on experimentation as well. And so I think you know it's like what is actually feasible in terms of how fast you can design, build, test, and learn in these spaces. Maybe lastly, I'd highlight um, what we sometimes describe as like, like an asymmetry of risk and incentive like alignment or misalignment potentially between these large incumbents and startups. Um, but by this, we mean that it's just hard for a behemoth industrial company to tolerate the risk of working with a small startup. I think in particular, there are these questions of incentives of, you know, often the operator on the ground doesn't stand to benefit from that strategic upside of like a 5% gain to EBITDA, but feels like they could be fired if something goes wrong in implementing software. So it's like, you know, what is their incentive and are they really gonna take risk? Um, so one of the things many startups in this space will have to navigate is just sort of how to drive that incentive alignment and sell strategically to a buyer who cares and find ways to sort of collectively mitigate that risk. So I, I tee all that up just because I think that like selling, selling to and working in the industrial sector is sort of like a unique beast and has a bunch of these features that make the super evolution look a little bit different here than it might elsewhere. Um, so I think like what that means for how super evolution intersects the industrials is that we think there is a huge opportunity here, but it's definitely you know not for the faint of heart. So 
you know, we believe companies are best positioned when they know the problem and customer set really well, which I imagine imagine you agree with as well. And I think what that enables is just the ability to solve that properly strategic problem such that leadership will want this before their competitors have it and you won't get stymied by the procurement team that you can meet the customer where they are on that, on that digitization journey, which might be, you know, at the very beginning innings. Um, and then lastly, that you can sort of sell to and engage those key stakeholders within an organization so you don't get bottlenecked by that sort of risk averse operator on the ground. Um, so that's kind of some of the like conceptual framing for how we think about, you know, what we're excited to, to fund in this space. I think some of the ideas that we feel like are most strategic and as a result sort of like themes we're investing along or a fewfold. Uh, I mean, probably none of these surprising to you. First is labor and automation. Second is computation, followed by flexibility and sustainability. So it's really the four, you know, themes which are pretty macro that I think about here. Um, I think on the on the first labor problems, whether it's shortages, productivity, or turnover, you know, these were all highlighted by the pandemic and remain top concerns for the industrial sector. So we're really excited to see solutions that drive labor productivity, enhancement, and automation in these spaces. Um, often this looks like robotics um, and, and stuff that sort of exists in the real world. Uh, so, you know, we've invested in companies like Canvas on the on the construction side doing drywall, third wave doing autonomous forklifts. But we think there's just, you know, immense opportunity to continue working on these problems. Um, and one of the themes that we tend to get excited about here is um, the concept of sort of like shared autonomy, where you don't need to get to 100% to be valuable. So it's like, how do you start cracking at that um, automation or autonomy problem and take down pieces that are interesting to people? And as you get embedded, as you learn more over time through all that data that you're collecting, you sort of automate more of that problem over time. We think that's sort of like a more tractable way to sort of go to market and, and get you know productive technology in this space. Um, on the computation theme, I think this is really sort of that opportunity to leverage the data, the prolific data we talked about to sort of help companies optimize their operations. This could be driving lower costs or higher top line. Effectively, this is a question of how do we do what we're doing better? You know, we've invested in companies like Afresh on the grocery side here and Viaduct and Automotive. All these players are sort of living on top of the data that is already being collected by their customer base. Um, often they're sort of layering in then the compute and that advanced engineering methodology to sort of create value on top of that prolific customer data. Um, on the flexibility piece, this is sort of a newer one for me. I think flexibility is the idea of breaking that paradigm that there's a trade-off between volume and cost or efficiency. So how do we adapt quickly and produce lower volumes at the same cost structure as we do sort of, you know, the high volume rigid stuff? So intelligence should enable us to have less rigidity in the system. And I think we have a couple early plays in the space. So, you know, Machina Labs is doing this in manufacturing by leveraging machine learning and robotics to enable low cost and low volume metal manufacturing. We have another portfolio company that's doing something sort of interesting here. Ferro Labs are doing machine learning software for existing large uh, producers, chemicals, steel, all that kind of stuff. And they have a steel customer that wants to incorporate more recycled scrap as input. The problem is that's an incredibly variable input and they need to generate consistent on-spec output. And so you have to have an adaptive process that can manage that vari variance, um, which Vero Labs does through software. And so that's sort of the idea for me, a flexibility, how do we enable more variability input to get to the same output? How do we make lower volume? Like all of these kinds of things there. 
And then lastly, I think, and this will you know, probably bring us some of the climate stuff, is a sustainability piece, which is we just expect a huge decarbonization effort to take place in the industrial sector. You know, industrials accounts for 25% of emissions today in the US. And how that would likely play out is both, you know, significant CapEx investments, but also OpEx changes to drive towards net zero. Um, so there's a huge, obviously, swath of, of companies and plays um, here. I'm currently in the process of, of closing an early and stealth investment in the sort of commercial real estate decarbonization space, um, have an investment in a company called PlotLogic that's driving precision mining to enable a clean energy transition. I really think the um, the opportunities here are immense and imagine imagine we'll continue continue investing a lot along that one. Yeah, and we'll, we'll come back to climate here in a second, but I, I really appreciated the kickoff to your answer. I think if evident, it, there's a lot of challenges going to market in some of these industrial infrastructure areas, right? You mentioned these are uh, mission critical risk environments. You can't just mess up and ask for forgiveness later. They're they're just starting some of their digital journeys, et cetera, right? But equally, I think that's why it's great to have allies like you, Sam, who know the go-to-market paths can help these founders think about some of the, uh, the realities of selling into these industries, how they sell into them, because the super convergence, the three technical developments, I, I think we're at a maturity point where technology to me is not the bottleneck. It's how do you approach these hundred year old incumbents and actually learn how to sell into them? Because if you do, what I've seen is you have a heck of a net dollar retention. You have a heck of a cohort expansion. You're sticky. You're not going anywhere, but you do have to get through that pilot purgatory. So having allies like you, Sam, and, and others that really spend their time studying these markets, I think is mission critical to get it done. So Love that part of it. And, and maybe um, I will bring us back to climate. Clearly, uh, investing in addressing climate challenges has a ton of momentum in VC right now, probably understatement of, of the year so far. Um, and when it comes to Innovation Endeavor's approach to investing in climate tech, you've written some great medium posts uh, that outline things like, as opposed to thinking of climate as a distinct vertical, uh, we think of it as a persistent horizontal underlying trend in nearly every space we touch. Industrials could be manufacturing, supply chain materials, transportation, agriculture, food construction, and buildings, uh, end quote, which I couldn't agree more with you on. And so with this in mind, your team expects to see climate tech as a force shaping the broader market, much like uh, transformational shifts in our economy and behaviors seen through increased capabilities in mobile or the explosion of data and prior waves of innovation. And you've also pointed out specific trends in the talent and funding landscapes that's convincing you we're at a different inflection point than where we were in the past when it comes to climate tech and innovation taking off. So all the build up here, the question is then, what are you seeing now that is different than those previous moments of VC enthusiasm around clean tech, you know, 1.0 or whatever it was? Um, I think we all read uh, John Doerr's recent book on on the evolution of this. So what are you seeing that's different and and how is that ultimately impacting how you source and, and diligence uh, potential investments like even the one that uh, you just mentioned in stealth? Sure. Um, yeah, so I think that that first point on you know climate as a horizontal trend, I think I make this point probably particularly for sort of folks who are not climate first or climate focused because it's probably quite obvious to those folks. but there's just no silver bullet here. And so I think, you know, we need a million small efforts given the diversity of the problem matches the diversity of our economy as climate is really everything. You know, every sector has emissions we willing to decarbonize. Um, so that diversity, I mean, in practice, what that could look like, for example, is that, you know, to decarbonize aviation, 
you might be looking at hydrogen or sustainable aviation fuels, but to decarbonize agriculture, that might be reducing emissions from cattle, replacing nitrogen, and investing in soil carbon. You know, I think that those examples just go to show that we're going to need lots of different solutions to solve lots of different problems. This is not any one problem. I had one founder come to me thinking about working on aviation fuels um, or decarbonizing aviation, and he was concerned that it was only going to reduce 2% of emissions. And, and, you know, my point was, if you could re reduce 2% of emissions, you should die happy and proud because that it's is massive. the size of each of these problems. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so I think what that means is that we need to build a lot of different solutions tackling these different problems, but that doesn't mean that each is small. The scope is still massive here, to your point. We need to spend, I think it's like $3 trillion to transition our economy to net zero by 2030. Certainly a lot of that will be CapEx and project financing, but I think we expect somewhere in the 10 to 20% range of that could be equity financing based on sort of historical numbers. And on top of that transition of our economy, we have the climate risk piece, which is that you know, we've already locked in 20 to 30 years of warming. And if we're able to contain warming to a two degree scenario, which we'll see, we should still expect to see four to $10 trillion of value at risk. So on both sides of that transitioning the economy and managing the risk in the process, there's a huge opportunity. And, and part of the way I'd frame this is that, you know, we think about the industrial and infrastructural bucket, we call it often like physical economy internally. And we see decarbonization as joining automation, flexibility, all the themes I just described as sort of a critical theme for the physical economy. And really like every physical economy company is going to be a climate company is sort of, you know, our, our view on this. Um, and I think to your question on, you know, what's different, what's newly possible, I think there's a few things here. So one on the technology side, you know, we're seeing the benefits of decades of the public and private investment. So now we do have a proper suite of NPV positive solutions. Um, and so I do think that there's an opportunity both both in venture and sort of like other um, levels of scale, whether project finance or others, um, to really accelerate the rollout of all the tools we already have and have you know put decades of investment into bringing the cost down. Obviously, renewables is a great example of that, and storage probably coming quickly behind. Um, two is public spending. Obviously, the IRA alone sort of unlocks. I think it's like 385 billion dollars in spend. I think one of the interesting things you're seeing in climate tech and the venture community right now is that certainly the things that are IRA related are getting the most um, time, attention and money, which I think, um, which I think makes sense, right? Like we'll see uh, battery companies that are wildly enabled by having their manufacturing facilities financed, um, having their cost of goods largely sort of supported, and then the buyer on the other side will have incentives as well. So the, those incentives really are going to be transformative and accelerating um, for some of these particular sectors. Um, the third trend is really sort of private capital. So like you mentioned, you know, climate uh, sort of being the hottest trend here, you know, despite the sort of market backdrop of tech and venture um, uh, having a tightening moment, I think the dry powder and climate is still growing, notably at the growth stage as well. So we've seen a ton of new capital raised to fund climate. I think one important part of these, this is that we have really the whole capital stack represented now, whereas in prior waves, um, you know, we might have been missing some of that later stage in growth capital. Um, we have more industry maturity. So, you know, the financing and development of solar and wind are no longer emergent categories. 
like I mentioned, storage we expect to be next, hydrogen, potentially fission, maybe even fusion, <laughs> are likely to go sort of mainstream next as we expect sort of some of that stuff to, to step into that mature moment. And then lastly is really talent. And I think this is a super interesting one. People want to work on climate. Like we've just seen a huge tailwind here um, of really amazing folks often coming from the technology sector who say, I want to work on something meaningful. To me, that means climate, given this is the most important problem of our time. And so, yeah, I think you're seeing really, you know, amazing experienced talent moving to the climate sector. Uh, I think um, there are some companies, I think all three of the segment founders are now working on climate, for example. And I think we should expect to see a lot more um, great folks like that. And then I think maybe the last thing I'd say is just sort of coming back on that on that first point. Cleantech 1.0 was like relatively constrained to like energy in thinking about sort of defining it. I would say climate. 2.0, whatever you want to call it, current, the current phase is really expansive in its view. So it's the whole, how do we transition the whole economy? And I think that unlocks all different kinds of opportunities, buyers, different pockets of demand, all that kind of stuff as well. Yeah, well, it's got to be more expansive, lots of problems to solve. And clearly it's great to have the downstream growth capital. It doesn't work without it but I couldn't just, you nailed it. The talent I'm seeing influx into solving some of these challenges um, because this is what they want to do to make an impact again, to use your word. Uh, it's quite impressive. So it's a, it's a recruiting call as well. If you're thinking about your next play, we're, we're seeing some amazing talent come join on the bandwagon for sure. Yes, definitely. Yeah. And so Sam, maybe um, speaking of these uh, folks that are always the most important part of the whole story here, the founders who are in the arena, we love to bring the podcast back to them and and give them some words of wisdom. Um, if they're thinking about raising venture capital in the current environment or approaching innovation endeavors, let's give them some advice. And we always love to split it. Um, any keys to success as they're thinking about entering that chat or just common challenges to avoid uh, as they, they hit that process? I think Probably a couple of things I would highlight here are more are, are more around sort of the building than the fundraising. And I guess that's my orientation in general mm -hmm. is there's there there may be some tension and moments between like the decisions you make to optimize for fundraising versus the decisions you make to optimize for building in an abstract way. But in general, my tendency is to like build the right thing and capital will follow. Um, and so I think like a couple of my main thoughts on sort of keys to success there at the earliest stages are really sort of like focusing, 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 and like de-risking product market fit. You know, as an early stage company, particularly in today's market where there may be more limited resources, fundraising less frequently, all these kinds of things. I think, you know, we just want to see folks focusing relentlessly on de-risking the most important levers to the business. And almost always that's, you know, having really demonstrative product market fit at the earliest stages, going to have really strong pull from the early set of customers who love what you're building. And that's really sort of one of, you know, one of the main things we're looking for um, in, you know, seed and series A companies. Uh, the second related piece to that is just, you know, hiring and building an awesome team and, and culture and place to work. I think, you know, people are everything in the early company and early hires will have an outsized influence on everything from product to culture the DNA that will then sort of ripple through future hires. Um, and I I think sometimes founders don't totally understand this, but I really expect founders to spend a significant portion of their time on hiring the right people and building the right pillar, like people pillars from feedback training to training everyone on how to interview the future people. It's really sort of, 
your one of your primary jobs is investing in that sort of people infrastructure um because that really is going to be everything um going forward which maybe relates to sort of one of the common pitfalls you're asking about which is i think one pitfall i sometimes see at the early stage is just sort of like clutching everything too tightly you know as a ceo you need to do what you and only you can do um, and the only way an organization can scale is if you're able to delegate and really scale beyond yourself. So that's where, like, again, a lot of your time should be on, like, getting the people stuff right. Um, I think one of the other things I think about as, you know, something to avoid is is thinking serially. But I think, like, I often see founders solving, you know, one problem at a time, often sort of the one right in front of them. But as a founder, you need to be seeing around corners and sort of layering in solutions. So, you know. It may take a few months to hire someone, another six months to get them fully ramped up. But that means you need to be hiring now for folks you need to be productive in, you know, nine to 12 months. And so it's like, how do you be seeing around those corners, not just be working at a thing right in front of your face, but sort of be thinking in a more um, parallelized way. Um, and then lastly, for us, I think we're really drawn to and excited about folks who have, you know, a huge vision and are super ambitious. And so I think one pitfall founders can fall into at the earliest stages is following low-hanging revenue versus de-risking sort of big strategic pie. And, you know, our preference as long-term investors is we want to see you de-risking that big long-term strategic vision you have, not getting sort of some revenue in the 100K range over off to the right if it's not sort of the main thing you want to be proving and de-risking and building over time. So that means skipping that early revenue to focus on, on unlocking that bigger opportunity for us. Um, those are a few of the things I pointed out. Yeah, all great advice. Um, so Sam, we always wrap it up here. So if you're ready for a little quick hitter Q&A section, we call the, the quick hitters. Um, let's jump in. Let's do it. All right. What is number one thing you're looking for when evaluating a founder within this ecosystem? <clears throat> I think first is ambition, which I just touched on a little bit. Just like how big are you dreaming? How far do you want to take this? And how much energy and hustle do you have to get there? Um, and I think the biggest other piece is probably, is this someone I would work for? Um, which obviously that's, you know, subjective. Uh, but oh, part of the way I answer that is I spend a lot of my time referencing founders to get a better sense for their capacity, growth, leadership qualities, integrity, and openness to feedback. Um, so those are probably things I, I spend the most time on at the early stages. Right on. What What is one resource, could be a book, podcast, blog, you'd recommend our audience to follow in this broader ecosystem? Uh, yeah, you know, I feel like there's a lot probably more and better content on the climate side. Um, so thank you for filling the hole on the industrials front. <laughs> um, in climate land, I, I love Climate Tech VC. I know you've had Sophie on here. Um, she's great. Yeah, she's awesome. Um, MCJ, my climate journey is also awesome. And Catalyst with Shell Khan um, on the energy side from the podcast perspective is great. And then I would say if you're looking for something a little bit different on the climate side, um, I'd recommend Ministry for the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson. This is a speculative fiction book, um, but it's focused on the future of climate. And he goes pretty deep into different technical and economic solutions. It's great fiction. So generally a great all around read and probably a bit easier to get through than some of the other um, nonfiction stuff out there. Right on. Need to read some more fiction. I know that's a gap for me for sure. Um, who, one person who should be on the podcast to help build up the ecosystem. Yeah. Um, I'd probably point to uh, a founder 
I know sort of in my um, tee-up of the industrial sector, I was talking about, you know, how important it is to know those spaces and problems in your customer set really well, how hard it is to navigate that go-to-market. Um, Andrew Job, who is the CEO and founder of a company, Plot Logic, which I believe I mentioned working on precision mining, um, he's really a great example of someone who brings that deep market experience as well as technical in his case to bear. So he was actually a mining executive for 10 years before leaving work to do a PhD in hyperspectral imagery and machine learning for mining and then commercialize that into his company that he's running now. So I think he's just someone who knows that industry inside and out as well as is you know at the forefront of trying to transform it. Yeah, got to have that domain experience paired, paired with building tech product for sure. Uh, okay, finally, Sam, best way for folks to reach out to you after the podcast? Sure, email. Um, I'm sam at innovationendeavors.com, so it should be easy. Right on. Well, we have lots of work ahead of us to do uh, as the super evolution continues, Sam. So appreciate you jumping on and look forward to finding more to work with you on. Thanks so much for having me. It was fun.